We're not crazy, the system is. Tune in to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Wednesdays 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on Pacifica Affiliate WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project. Streaming live, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Welcome to Madness Radio. I'm your host, Will Hall. Today, our guest is Gary Greenberg. I'll read his bio. Gary Greenberg worked as a handyman, truck driver, homesteader, logger, college professor, and psychotherapist before he became a writer. In The Kingdom of the Unabomber, his first published article was an account of his correspondence with Ted Kaczynski and appeared in McSweeney's in 1999. It was a basis for a short documentary of the same name by, by Errol Morris. And since then, Gary has written about science, medicine, and politics for The New Yorker, Harper's, Mother Jones, Rolling Stone, and Discover, among other magazines. His work has been included in Best American Science and Nature Writing. He is the author of The Self on the Shelf, Recovery Books, and The Good Life. His next book, Postcards from the Edges of Medicine, Diagnosis, and Its Discontents, is forthcoming from Wiley in 2008. He is currently working on Manufacturing Depression, The Secret History of an American Disease, to be published by Simon & Schuster. Gary lives in Connecticut with his wife, son, and a shifting cast of animals. Gary, thanks a lot for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Well, I was really, I was really impressed and enjoyed uh, thoroughly reading your recent um, Harper's um, article. And uh, maybe for people who, um, who haven't read it, you can just tell us the, the story of how you went through this amazing experience of, um, of getting a diagnosis and all, all that involved. Well, it was a very uh, interesting experience. What, what it, where it started is that for years I've been doing some reporting. I'm sort of a recreational journalist, and I've been doing some reporting on uh, depression and antidepressants. And I wrote in a couple of places about the clinical trial process, and I find it fascinating. So I was looking for a way to explore clinical trials from the inside, that is, to be a subject. And... Uh, I was having a lot of trouble finding a satisfactory way to do that. Most of the clinical trials, either they want healthy volunteers, they want them to try something that looks dangerous, like an untested drug, and people have been known to die doing that. And while journalism is worthwhile, it's probably not worth that. Um, or uh, they were for people who were sicker than I am. Um, but then a, a study came along at Mass General for what they were calling minor depression. And minor depression is a, a, a disease that hasn't quite been uh, invented yet. They're in the process of making it up. But if they succeed, it'll be a disease that requires only two of the nine criteria for major depression to be fulfilled. Um, and one of them, of course, has to be prolonged unhappiness. Uh, and, you know, living under the Bush administration for six years, I figured I certainly qualified as minorly depressed, minor um, as I hope. Minor depression. I, sorry, so, so this is actually going to be something that they're going to put into the DSM, the next edition? Yes, this will end up in the DSM. And studies of minor depression are intended right now to both find treatments for it and also to validate the uh, diagnosis. It's a two-pronged process uh, uh, in, in which uh, they can't lose because if the studies show any kind of statistical consistency, then the diagnosis gains credibility. Um, and, of course, the drugs they're using to treat it, the bar is set fairly low, and undoubtedly drugs will prove to uh, cure. However, I never found out much about minor depression because 
when I took the tests that the psychiatrist gave me uh, to get into the study, uh, he told me I didn't qualify for the minor depression study because I had major depression. Okay, okay. And what kinds of, and, quest- uh, what kinds of questions and things were they asking you? Well, there's a, it's a structured interview uh, based on the DSM, which is the, the Diagnostic Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. It's essentially a uh, sorting mechanism that pretty much assumes that everybody's, if you take the whole uh, structured interview, it's called the skid. If you take the whole skid, it's very likely that you're going to skid into one of its categories. Um, but there are questions uh, that are tied directly to the symptoms that are in the DSM for depression. So one of the symptoms is if you're unhappy most of the time, for most of the day, for more than two weeks, um, you know, that's one of the criteria. And so the question they ask is, have you been unhappy most of the time for the last two weeks? Uh, appetite disturbances, so they ask you, are you eating less or more than normal, uh, and so on. And they're fairly simple questions on the face of it, but they're often very difficult questions to answer if you have any tendency to um, to be thoughtful about your own experience. Uh, so I answered them to the best of my ability, which I'm still not sure how how good that was, but clearly it was good enough from their point of view that when the numbers said I was had major depression, regardless of what they did or didn't see in our encounter. Um, they decided that I indeed had major depression, which is strange because, you know, I'm a practicing therapist. Major depression is a pretty serious illness, and usually people who have it have trouble getting out of bed. They have trouble functioning. And I was up there, and, you know, in between our questions, we were talking about, you know, various academic issues. Uh, we were talking about clinical issues. We, I was in the middle of doing another magazine piece, so I was working. I had brought my laptop with me, which I hated to do, but I was in the middle of something and it had to be done. So I was clearly functioning. I wasn't tearful, but it wasn't my job to question this. In fact, you don't want to go questioning psychiatrists about their diagnoses. It just makes you look sicker. So I accepted it. And once I was uh, given this diagnosis of major depression, I was offered a choice of studies, and I chose a study to participate in. And you say that the... um the questions are kind of difficult to answer if you have sort of a thoughtful approach to what they mean. And I think that was the interesting thing about your, um, your article is how the, the language gets so slippery and difficult and, and challenging and, and um, gets very ambiguous and can get kind of spun in all kinds of different directions. Yeah, and, and of course that's just true about language. Um, that's, that's what it means to have a conversation. <laughs> uh, and it's what it means to be... Um, you know, active in the world is to use language and to try to sort out its nuances. Um, but the uh, the process of both uh, diagnosing and then evaluating the level of depression uh, hinges on a very naive idea of language. For instance, one of the questions that they asked uh, me as I as I went, so I, I enrolled in a study. And the study I enrolled in was to find out the effects of omega-3 fatty acids on major depression. And once I started taking my pills, I went there every two weeks for two months and got asked the same questions over and over again. So I got pretty familiar with these questions. And, for instance, one of the questions is, um, in the last two weeks, have you been feeling uh, especially self-critical? And I answered that question as best I could 
uh, until about the third time that it got asked, and I said to the psychiatrist, well, I don't understand this especially. Do you mean compared to how I want to feel? Do you mean uh, compared to how I think other people feel? What, what, what do you mean especially? And she said that the thing I should compare it to is to when I'm not depressed, which was a remarkably, I thought, inane answer. Uh-huh. Yeah. And sort of shamelessly, insultingly inane. Because the whole premise of this thing is, I don't know, I'm, the doctor's the one who says I'm depressed, who, who decides if I'm depressed. So, so how am I supposed to know? I didn't think I was depressed to begin with. It becomes kind of a self-reinforcing, circular of sort of logic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, 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 the, the question was, the answer was so circular that at first I thought she was kidding. And then when I looked at her and she was serious, oh my God, I've stumbled into some kind of house of mirrors here. So what happened when you got into this into this study? That was it. More questions like that, and more situations like that. Yeah, this is just it was repeated questions and situations like that. It's all it is. And I should a- add here that the the study that I participated in, while it's not an FDA, not a, an official clinical trial for an FDA approval, this is exactly the method that's been used to validate every antidepressant that's ever been validated by the FDA. This, these exact questions. There are 17 questions on the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale, which was uh, invented in 1960. Um, and those 17 questions have been the, the conceptual backbone of the antidepressant industry. This is how uh, drugs are evaluated. If you improve on the Hamilton, uh, if, if, if your subjects improve on the Hamilton, then your drug is deemed to be effective against depression. So essentially you're saying that their central di- clinical diagnostic instrument for studying the thing that they're supposed to be treating and curing is pretty much flawed at its at its very center because it's based on this subjective questioning circular logic kind of problem. Yes, that's exactly right. It's it's flawed and it's it's not just logically flawed which, you know, it's not just that it's tautological which it is. It's also that it's it's um, constructed not by accident uh, to favor antidepressants. The, the, the doctor who invented the Hamilton, whose name was Hamilton, um, was trying to f- help the drug companies figure out how to evaluate their drugs and was very familiar with the effects of the early antidepressants that came out in the late 50s um, and knew what to look for. So the test is keyed to what the drugs will do. 10 out of the 17 items on the Hamilton are uh, about neurovegetative signs of depression. Sleeplessness or too much sleep, uh, appetite, agitation, physical symptoms that the drugs are likely to uh, affect and possibly even improve. Only seven of them are about psychological uh, um, questions, and they are questions like the one I just asked you. I just told you about it, about being self-critical, or they have also, are you feeling guilty, and questions like that. So the the cards are really stacked in favor of the drugs, and that's not an accident. That was the whole point. And so um, tell us some more about the, um, the the study and how it how it kind of continued. And it was just more and more questions like this, and what were your sort of every time I to went it? to uh, every time I went up to uh, Mass General, I would uh, take. Uh, three, 
I believe it was three paper and pencil questionnaires. Um, you know, am I having thoughts of suicide or death? Uh, do I think life is worth living on a scale of one to five? How happy am I? That sort of thing. Um, and then a brief interview with a clinician in which they would ask me the, the Hamilton questions. And then there were a couple of uh, inventories that are mostly designed to assess side effects because that's something else you have to do in drug trials. So, you know, are you feeling particularly flatulent, uh, et cetera. And that's it. I mean, it's just you repeat. It's, it's uh, serve and repeat. Um, and you do that four times, and at the end of the trial, your Hamilton level is compared with your level at the beginning of the trial. And if, you, uh, if your Hamilton score went down, you, um, would, you were considered a good outcome. And if your Hamilton score stayed the same or went up, you weren't. And if enough people in the aggregate respond by their Hamilton scores going down, the antidepressant is considered effective. And in your case, you were, they were actually studying um, essential fatty acids. Oh, fish oil is what a supplement that a lot of people yeah. take. And yeah. I, I think you um, wrote that it, you felt that at the end of the study you were feeling better, but whether or not this was from the fish oil or supplement that you were taking or, or what was going on, it wasn't really entirely clear at all to you. Well, it wasn't even entirely clear to me that I was feeling better. I mean, what does that mean? <laughs> the, the Hamilton, according to the Hamilton, I was feeling better. Mm-hmm. This, this business of objectifying a person's subjective experience and then reducing it to a, a bunch of numbers is, is very uh, tricky. Uh, I wasn't feeling a trend in one direction or another. Look, I'm a lifelong melancholic. Sometimes I think that life sucks, you know? And I'm not the happiest camper in the world. I've gotten used to it. I'm 50 years old. Uh, And so I'm not sure that, I know that I'm not an expert on my own uh, response on the Hamilton. The Hamilton is the expert on that. And according to the Hamilton, I got better. Right. And, And also maybe according to this new diagnosis of minor depression, you might be one of the untreated sufferers of minor depression who can benefit um, from uh, medication. Is that right? Of course. Well, why do you think that the numbers are so high where they can say with some credibility that, you know, 20% of the American people uh, will have depression at some point, or they'll say that, um, you know, the World Health Organization has come out and said by the year, I think it's 2012, depression will be the second leading cause of disability in the world. Uh, because um, it's a very, very uh, coarse, a uh, very, very fine net. It's going to pick up almost everything. And it's getting finer with the, uh, the new diagnoses that are coming. Yes, right, exactly. I mean, the, 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 whatever the motivation behind it, and I think that it's a mixture of, of venality and uh, care for people and a lot of other things, whatever the, the motive behind it, um, the fact is that depression is becoming a huge industry. And, and I'm really, I'm interested in, in this question of the history of it and the historical trends. I know that's part of the work that you're, you're doing, but I wanted to get a little bit into the whole treatment end of it, because one of the things that you've uh, written about is the, um, the way in which the data are really skewed around um, the comparative effectiveness of medications compared to placebo. So can you explain to us how like the placebo comparison trials work sure. and what you see are the problems with that? Yeah, so, so the, the, 
almost all antidepressants since uh, about 1965, almost all drugs, have been tested by what's called the double-blind placebo-controlled method, which means that um, you give a group of people your medication and you give a group of people a placebo and you see if the placebo group, uh, or the, I'm sorry, the, the, the medication group um, gets more better than the placebo group gets. Um, and so what that means is that, and that's an acknowledgement of the fact that in almost any condition, there is some improvement that comes simply by the act of taking a pill which is a hugely interesting and mysterious uh, uh, business. And this is, it goes way back to the beginnings of Western medicine when people were given uh, things that we know now couldn't have been effective at a biochemical level, and yet some of them got better. Was it random chance, or was there a, a, a some, something in the relationship between the healer and the patient something in the act of taking a, a drug, a, a pill, that in itself makes you better regardless of what's inside the pill. And this is a question, of course, that there isn't a whole lot of money in answering. And research costs money. And although every study, psychiatric and otherwise, has inadvertently been a study of the placebo effect, <laughs> we still don't understand it. In antidepressant trials, um, what happens is that there's a very high placebo response rate, uh, at least high compared with the drug response rate. So in the, your average trial, 30 to 50% of the people in a depression trial respond to placebos. They respond, and I mean by that, that their Hamilton scores go down. And somewhat higher, 35 to 65% of the people taking a drug get better. And if you take all of the placebo, all of the studies that have been used to validate the leading antidepressants by the FDA, you find that the overall um, uh, advantage of drugs over placebo is about two points on the Hamilton. Usually, that's two, it, it, you have to have 18 points on the Hamilton to be considered depressed, and anything beneath that, you're undepressed, and the placebos, I'm sorry, the medications tend to reduce depression by about two points more than the placebos, which is statistically significant, but even the FDA can't tell you that it's clinically significant. For instance, the Hamilton asks you a lot of questions about napping. And if you nap for more than a half an hour a day, you're, that's, that's worth points on a Hamilton. The more you nap, the more depressed apparently you are, which makes you wonder how they're going to measure this in a place like Barcelona or any other siesta culture. But this is uh, beside the point. Yeah. Um, when, when, you, when, you, um, when you have this kind of response that you might have to medication, it involves maybe being a little more awake. Maybe you're not as tired in the afternoon as you once were. Well, that could be a two-point improvement on the Hamilton right there. So it doesn't take very much for a drug to distinguish itself against placebo, but the actual distinction is very small. And aren't there also problems with the placebo um, trials as well, the way in which uh, like placebo washout, for example, and, and the way in which people who are responders to placebo get taken out so that the effectiveness of the drug will be compared? Well, there's two schools higher? of thought of that, on that. Okay, so the placebo washout is when you... Um, 
at the beginning of a study, you give everybody the placebo. You don't tell the patient that that's what you're doing, but everybody gets the placebo. And people who respond uh, in a bigger way than other people are washed out of the study. Now, from a layman's point of view, that sounds, especially a skeptical layman, that sounds a lot like stacking the deck, doesn't it? It's like you're rigging the game to make it so that the drugs are going to look even better than they would by eliminating a portion of the population. But from a statistician's point of view, um, a scientist's point of view, what you're doing is you're weeding out the people who uh, wouldn't respond to the drug, and therefore you're getting a better picture of what the drug itself does. So uh, I, think it's, I think it's ambiguous um, what it means to eliminate placebo responders from studies. Clearly, however, whatever they really mean by it, it's going to increase the signal to noise ratio, which is what they want to accomplish. And so what kind of implications does this have in terms of the larger historical um, trends? Well, all societies have norms, and all norms are enforced. And sometimes they're enforced by direct means, uh, and sometimes they're enforced by less direct means. So the fact that there are norms of behavior or expectations in itself isn't a surprise, and while you know, while it's unfortunate in many cases, that's not really unique here. Um, nor necessarily is it even unique that people are doing things to their bodies, enhancements, to make themselves either more in keeping with the norm or more distinguished from the norm. Uh, people have taken drugs and other, uh, done other things to make themselves different um, since time immemorial. The really important question is, whose drugs are we taking? And in what way are we um, being influenced to take them, and who benefits when we do? And yeah, the so politics you, of uh, who gets to define what the what the norms are and what are considered uh, that's right. good and, norms and, and what and you've got bad norms. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, the politics of who defines really. Yes, and so what you've got is a situation where a, a large industry has gotten a way to define a problem that they have the solution for. Now, even that isn't all that unusual. That's how advertising works, after all. You convince people that halitosis is a problem, and then you sell them Listerine. It's, it's, you know, it's the basis of mass consumer culture. And I think most of us are really good at decoding when that's happening. I know you had Richard Grandprix on your show uh, from Adbusters. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, did that whole uh, idea that there is a there's a, a little secret world back there that's really controlling how you feel about yourself and what you're going to do about it. It's a, it's a very powerful idea, and it doesn't have to be conspiratorial. It's just the way consumer capitalism works. We've gotten pretty used to it, and most people have gotten pretty cynical about it. But I, don't, I think that the pharmaceutical industry and the medical industry together consider themselves exceptions. They don't really see themselves as consumer commodity-producing companies. Um, but they are. And in this case, the commodity that they're producing is, a f is, I would call it, not even happiness. I'd call it anti-depression. They've defined a kind of uh, malaise as a medical condition, and then they are um, providing the cure for it. And they use, the, and this is the most powerful thing they do, they use science to make that claim good. You know, the old ads for 
whatever, uh, any, any kind of consumer product where the guy in the white coat and the, with the stethoscope around his neck tells you why, it's, uh, why ivory soap is better than dial soap. You know? it's, it's very powerful when you tell people that science says this or that. Um, because then they think, well, there's nobody's, this is objective. There's nobody's point of view back there. It's just what science says. And the pharmaceutical industry has managed to take some very powerful science, neurochemistry in particular, and essentially hijack it, use it to create an idea about depression as a biochemical problem that uh, this is not unlike an infection or as they often compare it, you hear it compared to diabetes, uh, which requires their drug to fix. And that if you don't fix it with their drug, if you're a consumer, then you're just being perverse. And if you are a healthcare provider and you don't fix it with their drug, then you are negligent. But what about, I mean, the argument that gets brought out is that, well, no, actually there, are, there is real suffering out there, and there's the issue of suicide, for example. I mean, depression, depression often is something that leads to, to suicide. And so these treatments are really, really important, and they're saving lives, and, and there are many, many people out there who will credit um, antidepressants or other medications or other psychiatric treatments to really rescuing them and saving their lives. So what would you say about that in the context of, of what we're talking about in terms of the marketing and the advertising aspect? Well, the simplest thing to say about it is that it's probably true that uh, taking these drugs has helped people um, feel better and maybe even feel better enough not to kill themselves when they would have killed themselves without the drugs, although that, you know, just on the face of it is an impossible um, uh, question to investigate. Um, but Two reflections on that. First of all, um, we know that there's this, this indication in any way that the antidepressants we have at our disposal um, also can increase suicidality, uh, which is a very disturbing problem that the drug companies really don't want to look at square on. But secondly, and po probably certainly more demonstrable, um, antidepressants don't do very well with kinds of severe depression that often leads to suicide. Um, they do much better with uh, sort of a, a, a not, I would call it a, a more moderate depression. So that's one thing I would say. The second thing I would say about that is that um, just because a pill makes you feel better doesn't mean you were sick in the first place. And I think it's really crucial for people to understand. You could take Prozac and feel better. It doesn't mean that you had a chemical imbalance. It doesn't mean that you have an illness. It just means something quite unspectacular, which is that if you tweak serotonin in your brain, it's going to have an effect. It's going to, you're going to be in an altered state of consciousness. Which is exactly Some people how, like that altered state of consciousness. So, yeah. I'm sorry, what? Well, it's exactly how recreational drugs work. I mean, there's a very... It's exactly how recreational drugs work. There's a tremendous uh, similarity chemically between, serotonin, uh, between um, Prozac and the um, SSRI antidepressants and cocaine, for example, and cocaine changes... Well, I, actually, the, 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 the affinity for the, the proper comparison for SSRIs is to the specifically serotonergic drugs... Um, which would be uh, uh, MDMA or ecstasy um, L and LSD and related psychedelic drugs. Um, the downstream effects of SSRIs, that is the effects on other neurotransmitters, do resemble in some ways the, uh, those of uh, some of the effects of cocaine and even more uh, amphetamine. Uh, 
But as far as serotonin is concerned, uh, it's, that's the, the, the proper comparison is certainly to recreational drugs, but it's to ecstasy and LSD. Uh, and we know that if you give people those drugs, which no question about it, uh, have a major effect on, on serotonin, they enter an altered state of consciousness. This is how we discovered that serotonin does what it does in the brain, was because they figured out that LSD contains within itself the serotonin molecule. So it, it has an affinity for the same receptors that the SSRIs do. But this was early on in the 1950s. This was the crucial discovery in helping us to understand that neurotransmitters, uh, what they do in the brain. So the, um, so, SS, so the antidepressants are in some ways a product and a result of research into LSD recreational drugs, and then the marketing obscures the way that they, that they work and instead tries to sell the idea that there's this disease in the brain and the drugs are correcting it. I don't think any pharmaceutical uh, marketing person sat down and said, well, we have a, <laughs> we have a problem here. We got a drug that has its uh, owes its birth to uh, a recreational drug, and uh, we have a drug that actually acts a lot like a recreational drug, and we better do something about that. Um, I don't think that anybody uh, I don't think anybody actually sat down and figured that out. But the fact is that the distinction between a drug that makes you feel better on one hand and a drug that makes you feel better on the other hand. Uh, is not much of a distinction until you introduce that one of those drugs is curing an illness, whereas the other one is you just having a good time. And actually, I think that's the, I don't want to oversimplify, but I think that's an important impetus behind the whole antidepressant industry is distinguishing these drugs, not just distinguishing them from recreational drugs, but reassuring people who might otherwise go into a moral panic that they're doing more than just making themselves feel better. So the, um, I'm just getting back to the suicide question for a moment. So you're saying that there really isn't any kind of research studies out there that really would support the claims that drug manufacturers often make about this is really, you really need this because otherwise suicide is this great threat and that's going to be the result of the illness. Because that's often what's told to people with depression and bipolar disorder. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that I, I don't think anybody knows enough about these drugs to know that. And I also think that the drug companies are much more interested in investigating suicides that they prevent than they are in investigating suicides that they cause. My guess is that both happen. So uh, and probably, but for a doctor to tell a patient, look, if you don't take this drug, you're going to kill yourself, which I don't know that any doctor would do, but if a doctor did that, or for a drug company to advertise in a way that even implies that, is irresponsible at so many levels that it's barely worth responding to. Yeah, actually, I interviewed um, a woman who, she was diagnosed with bipolar at age 11, and the doctor did sat, sat down with her mother and said, look, your daughter needs to be on these medications for the rest of her life, or else there's a big risk of suicide, because that's the result of bipolar disorder. So it is, it is held up, it is held, it's incredible, but it is held up quite a bit with people. And then, well, that's, and then, that's right, and, and that's just the most extreme example of how this, uh, industry is an industry about convincing us that we're sick. That's just the worst kind of sickness. But it's not that, it's in, in its form anyway, if it's not its content, it's not that different from saying to somebody, uh, you um, have a chemical imbalance, it's like diabetes, if you don't take this pill, you'll be unhappy for the rest of your life. Exactly. Well, 
yeah, these things can be self-fulfilling prophecies, right? Yeah. And 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 it, even if it's not that direct, there, the, you know, it's like a virus out there. It's like one. It's one of those memes. And in the last twenty-five years, um, we've become increasingly convinced that our emotional lives, our subjective lives, are nothing more than accidental byproducts of neurochemical events over which we have little or no control. Do you think that the placebo effect kind of works both ways, that there's sort of a marketing effect? You mentioned the self-fulfilling prophecy, and it seems like m the marketing of these ideas itself acts as a placebo effect, creating the response and the need and the desire for, for treatment among people on a so social society-wide level. Yeah, I love that idea. That's that's exactly right. It's uh, the, the the notion that we are um, that we are collections of neurochemicals, etc. That's uh, it is. It creates a placebo effect. And so, what would be a? Um, I mean, like if if we were to really kind of grapple this huge issue in a direct way and really get to the bottom of this, and I, I know that a lot of the work that you've done has been looking at. Um, at the uh, you know the corruption of the science and the way in which the drug companies manage to spin the studies and the test results and the trial results, but if we were to look at the larger philosophical um, issues here as a society, what would be a good way to kind of grapple with issues of emotional suffering and and the way in which people do want some kind of relief and they they do want um, to be able to 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 respond in some way to the different kinds of of experiences that they're having without this kind of dishonest marketing, um, uh, advertising approach? Well, I think, first of all, you, um, you edu ed education in the sense that of debunking is really important. You don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, the fact of the matter is that we do have chemicals in our brains, and they do have some important role to play in our experience. And we know that if you act on those chemicals, you can change people's experience. And so far, I don't have any objection to that. But when you start to convince people that they're sick, then that is where you begin to run into trouble for two reasons. One of them is that sick people are vulnerable people, whether they're really sick or not. People who think they're sick are vulnerable. And that's just not fair, right? Uh, but the other reason that you don't want people to run around thinking that they're sick, that they're disordered in their chemicals, is because it sort of works against the possibility of looking outward. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to be depressed, frankly. Uh, and people, don't, a lot of times, you, you hear uh, proponents of antidepressants say, well, you know, what the antidepressants do is they make people more able to fight against social oppression. But, you know, in a way that's not really true because one of the effects of antidepressants is they tend to make people less passionate. So while I've, I'm not, I, I don't have any problem with taking drugs or better living through chemistry, but as you, what you just said about the dishonesty, that bothers me. If you made it more honest and you made it, that is to say, you made it more honest and said these are uh, drugs that are going to make you feel better and it was understood that the problem here isn't that you're sick. The problem here is that you live in a very complex world that sometimes makes you unhappy, and there are many avenues of, uh, of solution to that problem. And if we spent as much time articulating what those avenues were, 
and encouraging people to pursue them as we do articulating what these chemical imbalances are and articulating reasons for people to take drugs, well, I think there'd be a little more attention paid to some serious problems. A lot of the problems with the psychiatric drug industry are related to the problems with society's attitude towards drugs in general and the war on drugs and the way in which we criminalize some and medicalize other drugs. We have good drugs and we have bad drugs. We have doctor-approved drugs and then we have street drugs that are just completely demonized. So what are, you, sure. what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think that's uh, right, right, right on the money. I don't think that the war on drugs necessarily causes this. I think they both spring from the same, from the same count, source, which yeah, is yeah. The, the ambivalence about pleasure. Uh, you know, this is you know, read read, read the, about the Protestant work ethic. I mean, if the idea that you have to earn your pleasure um, is very is very important, and it's a lot of what keeps the war on drugs alive. But there are other important political points to be made about that. For instance, if you look at the history of making drugs illegal, which is largely in the 20th century, you find that it's uh, in many ways it's a history of oppressing. Um, um, ethnic minorities. Um, you know, morphine was legal until the numbers of Civil War veterans and housewives who were addicted to it dropped off because of things that the, the doctors were doing, good things that doctors were doing. Well, of course, Civil War veterans died, but the, uh, the idea of using it as a tonic, um, you know, that fell out of favor in, in, among doctors. But So who was left using uh, opiates? Well, you had your inner-city black people, and uh, you had your Chinese people, and suddenly uh, what was a health problem became a, 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 social, a social problem, and it became a, uh, you know, a, a problem to be handled by the law. And I think you'll find that with the history of most every drug that's been made illegal, um, some you know, LSD in the counterculture. So, you know, if you want to explore that, you can just look at how the drug industry is a highly uh, powerful and in some ways highly thought of industry, um, and it has science on its side, and that does explain why the things that they produce are going to look a lot better and be legal, uh, uh, as opposed to the other kind of drugs. What kind of reception have you found to your work well, you know, there's been a predictable mix of outright hostility, um, uh, utter bewilderment, and, uh, and uh, sy sympathy. Uh, you know, we're 25 years into, uh, actually, that's not right. We're 20 years into the, into the Prozac era. And I think that the, uh, just by the, the nature of the pendulum swinging, um, we, there are many people who are questioning it. Um, and so it's found a fairly um, deep resonance among people who five years ago might have uh, been down with the biochemical model and are now really questioning it. Doctors uh, tend to um, defend it. Um, and uh, then there are a lot of people who are in the middle and bewildered, just confused. Well, what, what is, because it, it's undeniable that there's biochemistry involved, right? What they've got wrong is the causation. We have made this fundamental logical error of mistaking correlation for causation. And it's almost a, a, amazing how that simple error underlies so much of our thinking about these things. And it's obvious that that error is what 
uh, you know, no self-respecting drug company is going to do anything to rectify because it, it, it works so well. Um, it, it, it certainly, this work has created enough um, notice uh, to get me, um, I'm, I'm going to have a book coming out called Manufacturing Depression, The Secret History of an American Disease, uh, and, and Simon and & Schuster is publishing it. He can't get much more mainstream than that. Wow, so give us a little bit of a preview of your, uh, of your book. Well, you've just heard it. Oh, okay. uh, the, the idea is that um, depression is uh, a form of unhappiness that has been invented for us along the lines of any other consumer commodity um, to, to, um, to be, first of all, for us to see that we have, and secondly, for us to seek the remedy for and uh, this tendency goes back to the earliest days um, of Western medicine. That would be back in Hippocratic times in ancient Greece and uh, right up through the present day. But the, the heart of it is going to be the story of what happened in the 50s and 60s that uh, took our fundamental understandings of neuroscience and turned them into fodder for the pharmaceutical industry's mills. Yeah, the, the great thing about capitalism is that it, it makes conspiracies unnecessary. Uh, I don't know that anybody's really competent enough to carry out uh, conspiracies. I mean, I always laugh when people talk about, you know, the Bush administration was responsible for the uh, World Trade Tower disaster as if they were competent enough to do that, but they're not competent enough to do anything else. But you don't need conspiracies. All you need to do is ride the wave. And you don't even need to be conscious of riding the wave. You, you, you know, capitalism is a great thing. And, and uh, all of what you s just said is, is true. You can't, first of all, you can't blame the victims. And secondly, um, there's, a, a real, um, there's a real resonance for something like antidepressants out there in the culture. If the drug companies shamelessly exploit it, they're just being good businessmen and women. Are you hopeful of for the future? Do you think that this um, the medicalizing our experience and um, the dishonesty around uh, drugs and is that that's going to continue, or do you think that we're actually moving into a much uh, a different um, direction in society? Well, I think that um, I, I don't really know, of course, because I don't know the future. But I, I think that um, the the problem of disingenuousness disingenuousness in um, medicine, particularly in the practice of diagnosis and treatment, is probably on the increase. Um, certainly, the mongering of diseases is on the increase. Um, that, that's become a very central part of the medical industrial complex. On the other hand, um, like with normal consumer advertising, I think people are going to get better and better at decoding. The problem is that there's such a disconnect in the level of expertise between, you know, your average neuroscientist looking at MRIs or metabolic studies and your average even educated person on the street trying to grapple with his or her own daily uh, uh, struggles, that it's very tempting, and I found this temptation to be real when I was in the clinical trial, it's very tempting to just say, okay, wow, you know something I don't know. Yeah, the experts, so I think to, um, to the extent that people are capable of, you know, being curious and that people from my side, the writer's side, are able to convey complex science in a way that is both informative but also skeptical, 
I think we'll have a little bit of, of a chance here. I, th- I think the pharmaceutical industry is, um, you know, is going to be like uh, General Motors uh, 10 years from now, That's the way General Motors is now. I and mean, you compare GM to what it was 50 years ago, and it's really quite startling and stark. Uh, the drug company, I think probably the, the easy targets have been found. The model uh, on which the drug company works, which is you find some kind of a molecular level target that causes some kind of a disease, you know, syphilis, uh, penicillin, that whole model uh, has been very uh, effective. It's been very, very good to the pharmaceutical industry. But I have a feeling that they found all the easy targets and things are, things are really going to change. And one of the things that's going to change is that they're, um, they're, at some point this business of inventing illnesses is going to um, become too much of a burden and they're going to have to find some other way to go about it. At the same time, so long as it's left in the in the private sector, so long as it's profit-driven, you can expect them to do what every other commodity uh, manufacturer does, which is to look for new markets and create them when they can't find them. And you mentioned the World Health Organization earlier. I mean, there's a, there's a real danger that even if uh, in this country we start to get a little smarter about this stuff, that the companies just turn around and just start marketing it around the world with the same old messages. Oh, yeah, well, the, the WHO pronouncement, I'm sure, lit up some boardrooms <laughs> that, you know, wow, this is going to be a worldwide market. Um, now, whether or not that's really going to be the case, uh, whether or not enough people in the world are going to be able to swing the money to uh, pay for antidepressants even at generic rates is another question. But, yeah, that's a, it's a great thing, isn't it? There would, might be people who say, well, you know, health is a right, and so medical care is a right, and so I have a right, and our country has a right to have the same access to antidepressants and other psychiatric treatments that uh, the richer countries do. And um, and so what would be your response to that? Well, I, I guess my response to that would be, first of all, as long as you're talking about the right to, uh, you know, take drugs that make you feel better, I'm down with it. Um, obviously, it would be nice if they would extend that right to people in this country who don't particularly want to take um, alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, and Prozac, um, th- this would be a better world. Um, so I, I think that the hypocrisy that's involved in that position is about is, is, is that it's just an exploitation of the idea of human rights for the benefit of an industry, um, and that the backbone of that is saying that people have this illness, um, and that what they really have the right to do is not to be sick. And the problem I find with that isn't, again, isn't so much that people's suffering shouldn't be relieved, but that if you declare them sick, ultimately it's a question of dignity. Um, the, the right to, to happiness uh, was always thought of as a right to dignity, uh, among other things. And when you convince people that their, that the, their actual experience, that the the, their history, their most profound um, subjectivity is nothing but the outcome of biochemical accidents, um, you're really robbing them of, the di- of their dignity, at least in the way we've thought about human dignity since at least the Enlightenment. Now, maybe we're going to come up with a different definition. Maybe we're going to decide that the self and consciousness is all just so much uh, steam uh, you know, raised by the percolation of biochemicals in our brain, in which case this conversation will sound foolishly uh, antiquated to people. Um, but in the meantime, call me old-fashioned, but I think it's important to extend to people the dignity of their own history. 
And I think that a, a definition of depression as, a, as an illness um, takes that away from them. The dignity of their own history. Uh, can you say more about that? Because I think that when I interviewed Richard de Prix, he said that when you introduce um, drugs and an illness model into the equation, it kind of just it, it complicates the story and it makes it unclear what's going on. And then it even you're saying that it even erases your experience. And just well, when I went, when I was that was that was my experience at the drug trial. They didn't really care what I was feeling or thinking. They cared how I answered the questions. Now, I don't, I'm not, I don't take that personally, <laughs> but the fact that they don't care is, 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 is really crucial. There are people who are supposedly dedicated to the healing of human suffering, and they don't really uh, care a fig about what's actually what I think is going into my unhappiness. So it's, it's a matter of erasing subjectivity in order to cure it of its discontents, which just rhetorically, obviously, it doesn't work. But if you extend that out, um, what you're really doing is, is reducing the importance of our own collective sense of ourselves as historical actors, people whose experiences matter. Do if you think it's all just a matter of what's going on in my head, then why should it matter? It's a form of nihilism. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of reductionism. Do you think that part of it, too, is the way in which if you really do care and you really want to um, hear about and understand someone's experience, there's, there's kind of like an, 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 an involvement, an emotional involvement, and things get messy and complicated and human, and so there's a tendency to want to objectify and step back and create that kind of clinical distance because it's a safer way of keeping control of the situation? Absolutely, and, and that's a fundamental part of medicine, which, by the way, sometimes works out for the better. I was reading today about the invention of the stethoscope. The stethoscope was invented by a guy who found himself unable to listen to the heart of a woman who his, he would have had to put his ear on her bare chest, and under the mores of his time in the early 19th century, that was unacceptable. So he figured out a way to stand back, make the encounter less intimate, um, and, and mediated by a piece of technology. And in return for that, he got a, a really boss way to listen to what's going on inside the body. Now that is a good use of objective distancing. <laughs> but when you're doing it to make it not matter whether or not my self-criticism is about you know, urging myself on to better achievement or um, uh, berating myself for not being able to afford a Porsche or... Um, you know, for not being uh, a good enough father, you know, there's a million reasons to be self-critical when you don't really care about them and you only care about self-criticism as a number on a test, which in turn is designed to, to sell drugs. <laughs> You've got a problem there. Gary, there's so much that we could talk about. We're out of time. I want to just thank you for uh, joining us today on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. been listening to madness radio voices and visions from outside mental health madness radio is broadcast every wednesday 6 to 7 p.m eastern standard time on pacifica affiliate wxojlpfm 103.3 valley free radio in northampton massachusetts for our live internet stream podcasting show archives and more visit madnessradio.net madness radio is co-produced by freedom center and the icarus project for more information, check out freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. For more mental health radio, listen to the news hour from mindfreedom.org, Wednesdays, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
Do you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, or you just want to share what's in your head? Contact us at radio at madnessradio.net. Thank you.